Hey guys, and welcome to the Movement Docs Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Mike. And we're just two guys who want to help students and clinicians grow in the field of rehab. Welcome to the show. Hey guys, and welcome to episode four of season two of the Movement Docs Podcast. Uh, today we're going to be joined by a very special guest, John Flagg, the infamous Rebuild Stronger Online. Uh, today's podcast, hopefully we're going to learn how to maybe rebuild stronger offline as well. John graduated in 2006 from Salisbury University with a bachelor's in athletic training. He then completed his graduate work at Penn State University, working with baseball, softball, and men's and women's soccer teams. He's a clinical athlete provider and currently works in, at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland, as the Wellness Program Director. 301 Strong, also in the White Plains as their lead strength, strength sport coach and is the owner-operator of Rebuild Stronger, an online training platform for powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman. His current passion and big project is designing and implementing the new Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Coach Certification Course. John, we're very, very pumped to have you on the show. Welcome. Happy to be here. <laughs> very pumped. Yeah, this should be fun. <laughs> All right, so as it's tradition, um, one of us didn't probably read the uh, the Google Doc, which is probably Mike this time because I'm, I'm the one that actually put the questions in, Whoa. which I think is a first. <laughs> that's like the first time that that's ever happened. I think so. <laughs> uh, my, how the tables have turned. <laughs> so, John, for those of us or all of our listeners out there in um, radio and potentially video worlds who aren't familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself that's not covered in that bio? Um, you pretty much hit most of the, the big points. Uh, I think other than professional life, uh, I've got two beautiful little girls, Um Jolene, who's five, and Maddox, who's five months. Uh, they occupy most of my time outside of coaching and, and working clinically. And then I'm also still a competitive powerlifter somehow. Um, <laughs> speak of the devil. Oh. Say hi real quick. Hi. Hello. Hi. <laughs> no, you remember Mr. Jake. We had pancakes with him one night. Okay. Mommy's <laughs> outside. Go get mommy. Um, but no, still, still competitive powerlifter and coaching pretty much all the time at this point. Dad mode engaged. <laughs> pretty much, very quickly. <laughs> now, John, are you? Do you do compete in uh, like raw, single ply, multi ply? Uh. I'm raw, 100% uh, USAPL, and I've done USPA Classic Raw uh, with just wraps. I was supposed to do a single-ply USAPL meet this January that got canceled because of weather. Okay. I was really, really excited for that, um, but I'll probably get back into equipment at some point. Uh, I have this stupid, really stupid goal of um, qualifying for nationals in single-ply, qualifying for nationals raw both in usapl and qualifying for masters usaw all in the same year that is a that's that is a lofty 
that that's pretty damn impressive if if you can pull that off I, I started this goal like five years ago and I was like yeah once I'm 35 we'll be masters for USAW and I might be able to do it <laughs> um, but with the powerlifting stuff the the equipment is massively uncomfortable and I ended up finding out my squat pattern doesn't really change between the two mm-hmm. and that's been the biggest benefit uh, so I just tacked that goal on on top because uh, I've had a lot of fun switching back and forth. I know a lot of people don't really like to, but I've loved switching into equipment, playing around with wraps, doing the, the – I'm back right now. All my training is raw, but it's been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Now, for uh, some of the listeners out there who aren't super familiar with powerlifting and the different techniques, uh, what's the difference between, like, single-ply, double-ply, raw, all that kind of stuff? Uh, raw, it, it's all just equipment standards. Um, the general rules apply across the board for all of it. Um, but raw in most federations at this point is typically just a, a normal singlet, like a wrestling singlet that you would typically see. It's not supportive, uh, a weight, a belt, um, and then knee sleeves. Uh, that also includes like wrist wraps and that sort of thing. Most don't allow like elbow sleeves, and that's sort of equipment. Single ply is the next scale of massively uncomfortable, and you get to use knee wraps, which basically cast around your knee and give you more support. Um, And then a squat suit, a bench shirt, and the most uncomfortable thing in the history of the planet, a deadlift suit. Uh, and single ply basically what it does is it it has very supportive stitching through the hips and and some other areas that help you handle a little bit more weight and spring you out of where would be considered typically a lot of uh, weak points Mm -hmm. especially like the bench shirt bench shirt has a bunch of stitching through the chest and as you come down that stitching takes a lot of the load and it's like a slingshot coming off your chest Multiplies just more and more and more of that stitching, more and more and more uncomfortable, and <laughs> way more weight. So all of them are just scaled um, amounts of uh, supportive equipment that you can wear. Gotcha. So. Now, I know there's like, because I, I train at a, a pr- predominantly geared powerlifting gym. Um, I don't, I personally don't compete in gear. Um, but when I moved up to Winchester, like that's where I was doing like raw competitions, but I was training with a guy, a bunch of guys that like, competed in multiply in like the IPA, um, SPF, RPS, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the biggest, uh, things that gets thrown around out there is, oh, the shirt does all the work or the suit does all the work. How do you feel about that that notion? Because last time I checked, if you threw a bench shirt on a on a bench, it, it doesn't bench the bar by itself. It doesn't. Uh, and there, so I find that laughable a lot of the times. Now I I have seen and typically people cite these guys that bench you know mid sixes into the sevens who have like a three hundred pound raw bench. I get it. Okay. I I understand the benefit that it brings, but if you want to tell me when David Hoff unracks a thousand pounds and holds on to it (laughs) in his hands, that task in and of itself is insane. Um, Yes. Through a a limited range of motion, the, the shirt helps, but it doesn't do all the work. You have a absolute load in your hands right or on your back that you have to support at least statically 
<laughs> for some period of time. And you you see the weights that's being moved. It's a different sport than raw lifting, but the athlete is still handling a ton of stress, a ton of of load, and it, it has to be handled accordingly. So it's just it's different. And unless you've done it, I don't think a lot of people can really understand. I mean, a bench shirt can kill you. Yeah, there was actually, I think last weekend at, uh, at York Barbell, they did a meet and a, a girl, um, she benched 400 in a shirt, smoked it, went up to 415, and her radius snapped in half. Yeah. Or if you misgroove it because you're inexperienced in it, it can throw the bar back towards your face. And it happens so quickly that a lot of the time spotters won't react accordingly. Um so, so yeah, I mean it's the it's helpful. It's supposed to be helpful. It's supportive equipment by definition. Support would dictate that it helps you, but it, it doesn't do close to all the work like people make it out to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting because when I first um, started training at this gym, I thought like I, I I don't think I really understood what the concept of like strong was. Um, because I had had maybe like a 300-pound bench at the time. I'd squatted like around five. And the gym that I was at at the time, you know, there were a couple other people that were pretty strong, uh, training like a former Westside gym down in Charlottesville. But um, once I got up here and I saw people in multiply shirts benching like close to 700, 725, I w- my mind literally just melted. I was just like, how is this possible? And then training in that environment where, I mean, granted, I wasn't using supportive equipment, but these guys were, but still trying to keep up with their their squatting and stuff, just really pushed the envelope as far as, like, changing and challenging that definition of what I thought strong was and what was humanly possible. Yeah, and it, when you get around that perspective, I think training environment makes a big difference for a lot of people. If you get around a lot of very strong individuals, it forces you to kind of keep pace. Uh, It's mind-blowing, the things that I've been able to see. Uh, Probably one of the most defining moments coaching for me was at the Arnold two years ago. And one of my athletes was on the same warm-up platform with Ray, Blaine, and Kelly, and, (laughs) and, and Bryce. And we're all sitting there, and you have to hold on to this ER rack, and it's taken four of us just to stabilize the rack to make sure we can put the 980 pounds on the bar for Ray's last warm-up. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and they're, they're all just kind of hanging out, and you're like, this is insane. Like, the strength in the room right now is just immense. Uh, and that, that perspective is invaluable. It, it kind of like uh, goes back to the old adage of like you don't want to ever be the smartest guy in the room. Like you want to be the dumbest guy and surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Same thing I feel like with strength training. Like you don't want to be the big dog in the gym. And I mean sometimes it kind of happens that way. But it, 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 it just becomes so much more beneficial if you can seek out people that are better technicians or that are stronger that you can just glean something off of. Mm-hmm. Because every time you do that, you're going to get better. Well, it's part of the magic of Westside. You know, you put a bunch of murderers in a room, 
<laughs> and, and I mean, they're all they they would just kill weight every day, and you hear the old stories about you know how um, now I'm gonna blank on his name, but he came in with a scale and just he weighed every chain, he weighed every band through its entire range. Of, I mean, you had guys that would come in and they just made everybody in the group better all the time. Um, that's part of the magic. You can talk methodology, you can you can talk. RPE and percentage-based training and periodization or whatever you want to talk about, special exercises. But in the end, a lot of the times it comes down to the, the people that are training with you or at least the people you associate with in the game. So I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. <clears throat> Normal human heart and also the robot part of my heart as well. <laughs> 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 All right, so let's um, let's talk a little bit about athletic training, man. What let's uh, do it. Why athletic training? I was banged up in high school a lot. Um, I was a three-sport athlete, football, wrestling, and track and field. And my athletic trainer back in high school uh, became one of my best friends because of it. Uh, chronic ankle sprains are one thing that I battled quite a bit in high school. Uh, and Jerry kept me ticking. He kept me playing. Uh, from there, uh, later on, so my brother is like six or seven years younger than me, and he went through a string of really nasty concussions. And that helped solidify the decision as to what I wanted to do with my life, because if it wasn't for Jerry, uh, my brother's cases could have been mismanaged. And I mean, he's, he's a doctorate in engineering now over in Denver. So he had a a very powerful brain that could have been melted through, you know, some of the mismanagement that had happened in that period of time, because we were still figuring out concussion protocol stuff. And Jerry was super responsible with it and, and helped out quite a bit. But that was, that was the big decision maker for me. And then I got into Salisbury and it's a work hard first program is probably what I would describe it as, which just kind of grooved with how I am. So that just kind of pushed me the rest of the way. That's awesome. What would you say is um, kind of like in your mind, you know, you mentioned that Jerry was kind of pivotal in terms of your recovery and also your brothers. What would you say in your mind is kind of like, uh, you know, the key qualities that uh, a good athletic trainer should possess or, you know, or, or, or recommendations, you know, for, for that kind of thing. Oh, um, well, I would I would paint paint this across any clinician, not just athletic trainers. I think they have to be empathetic. I have I think they have to be active listeners. Um, I think those are probably the first two, especially the more we learn about the way people respond to injury and the way they respond to uh, what I would consider an identity crisis. If you get hurt as a especially high level athlete or any athlete, you get things taken away from you under injury that you're not really used to. Uh, and the, the road back can be a psychological uphill battle as much as it can be a physical one. So being empathetic and understanding where that athlete mentally is and, and where they are physically, obviously, and being able to be an active listener so that you can help work through those things with the athlete is, are two of the things that I would, I would put for any clinician, whether you're a, a ATPT doctor, whatever it may be. Those are the big two for me. 
Gotcha. That makes a ton of sense. I mean, there are other qualities. You have to be strong in anatomy and physiology. You have to understand all the other stuff. But, mm-hmm. you know, the more the more I learn now, like back in the day, I would have been like, you need to understand strict therex progression and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> That's changed. Nah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I mean, it makes so much sense. And, you know, like... Um, I'm more of a new grad just coming out of this thing. And, you know, um, even just thinking of those first couple of internships and, and where I'm at now, you know, a lot of it's just like coming out of the box. You're like, all right, we're going to fix everybody. Um, you know, a strong command of anatomy fizz, like you had just mentioned, all this kind of stuff. Um, this is what they're going to need to get out of it. And more and more, it actually really just depends on, or what I'm realizing anyway, is just depends on uh, can you connect with the person? Are you actually listening to what they're saying? Um, and then, you know, the active listening part is huge. Well, and there are there are things about athletic training that are unique that I think a lot of people don't take into account sometimes when we start comparing what I'll what I'll call physical medicine fields, right? Like physical therapy and athletic training. The time constraints in AT are substantially different. Typically, you have forty people march into your room at the same time before practice starts, and you almost have to triage the room the same way a strength coach would, where you have to touch your bases with each single person, but you don't have 30 minutes. I mean, most PTs don't have 30 minutes at this point to sit down and talk to somebody. Um, But it's a high volume profession. Add on top of that, and I think, Jake, we talked about this after the last Strongman event, uh, getting through the superstitions that are involved in sports are – are pretty wild. I mean, I worked baseball. Baseball guys tap their shoe three times before they walk out of the dugout and, like, make sure they got the same hat on and make sure, you know, they brush their teeth the same way with, like, five strokes on the left side and four strokes on the right side. I just don't understand some of the superstition. But you have to get through that, and, and trust building and athletic training is incredibly important and can be super difficult sometimes. Now, you do get in a lot of situations, though, because you're around those guys so much, you have so much more of an opportunity to connect. And then when stuff does pop up, you can go like you can tell if somebody that you've been working with is off or they're hurt. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, And that's one of the huge benefits is like, yeah, there's you have time constraints with, you know, your ability to do rehab, especially if you're you're there's only one AT at that location. Right. Like if you're a small high school and you don't have a two with you or any student assistance or anything like that, it's just you. I mean, there's going to be days where you're swamped and you don't even make it out to practice until it's almost over. Yep. You know, and that's just the reality of of the, the way the profession works. But um, but because you get to spend so much time with those guys and you're and, and girls and you're around them all the time, you know them, you, you see them develop, you know, throughout their time and whether it's high school, college, or, you know, non-traditional settings. Um, and it really does give you the ability to kind of know, like, hey, there's something, something's not right here. Maybe we should have a conversation or, you know, you're, you know, maybe their performance is off. Maybe their attitude's different. Um, you just have much more. And, I mean, we talk about it in PT is we have so much more time than doctors do and then all these other, uh, you know, rehab professionals do. But at the same time, like, athletic training, I think you probably get the most time with people may not always be in a clinical or like a rehab setting, but you get, you get to have those interactions and those touches with people on, on a regular basis, which I think is hugely important to the profession. Well, especially if you consider practice time. So if you're still an on-the-field AT, which I'm not anymore, 
But if you're still an on the field AT, it's minimum of what, 10 hours a week where you're mm-hmm. on the sideline with people. And it's not like every sport, they're constantly out there the entire time for the whole two hours. So I mean, you do, you get a substantial amount of time to interact. The one thing that I will say, and, and this is for all athletic trainers, find every team that I've ever been on, there's been two difficult athletes, at least, right? The quiet ones, the ones that don't really want to share. We are probably one of the easiest ways to get through to them because there's much less of a intimidation factor or an authority factor there, right? They're not going to confide in coaches because they're afraid or there's a bunch of other things that go into that. But that's one of the reasons why I put being empathetic and being active listeners, because we need to be able to reach those kids too. Um, instead of just labeling them as difficult athletes, because what ends up happening is because they're the difficult athlete, they burn out, they leave school, their injury rates higher because of the psychological stress. Uh, we, we need we need to, to rectify that that situation, and I think we are in a prime position to be able to do that. So that's my my message for the podcast. <laughs> nice. It's, it's interesting because I'm listening to, uh, as you know, John. I like to, and Mike listen to books, not necessarily read them all the time. Me too. Audible is my friend. <laughs> oh yes. And uh, I'm listening to Conscious Coaching right now. By on you. There's a lot of stuff in there that's that kind of echoes what you just said, as far as like being adaptable, like you know, being able to to read the people that you're working with, understand the quote unquote like difficult athletes or someone that has a slightly different personality or or gravitates towards different things. Being able to to find ways to communicate with everyone in an effective way um, is super important for anybody. Doesn't matter what profession you are, and it's, it's like it, being human. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up too because I I want people to understand, at least in my opinion, in this case, there's a difference between being adaptable and being a chameleon. And uh, Friday, Quinn Jared and I talked to John Kiley. He's the guy, the the researcher who does a lot on uh, periodization, right? But he's a super high level coach himself, and he mentioned being adaptable to your athletes, but being consistent as an individual. A lot of the times people take that adaptable and they try to think, well, I'm going to change my personality to fit all the different personalities of the athletes in the room. And that can be really difficult because now you set different expectations throughout the entire team as either a coach or a clinician, we need to stay as consistent as possible and may have to adapt our communication skill or how we're trying to reach that athlete. But our general behavior still needs to be consistent to make sure that the team as a structure stays gel. And that's a super difficult thing to do. And I know a lot of people are going to be like, what the heck? what is he saying right now? <laughs> Cause it, it does sound kind of confusing, but you don't want to be like the one thing he said is he's not a comedian. So he's not going to be a comedian. Right now, he might crack jokes to lighten the mood with a particular individual, but he's not all of a sudden just going to be the comedian with that person all the time. He's going to be John, and everybody will expect that eventually. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, 
So here's because rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> have you Deep guys dive. ever seen? <laughs> have you guys ever seen the SNL sketch with the the girlfriend voice? No. I'm gonna see if I can find the clip. But the basic premise is that there is this phenomenon that when a a guy talks to his girlfriend on the phone. His entire voice, demeanor, and everything changes. Oh, I don't have to see an SNL skit. I've yeah, seen yeah. that in real life. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's – they SNL, I think, like, five, ten years ago, they just had this, like, absolutely hilarious, you know, depiction of it. But, like, I mean, you see it all the time with your friends. Like, you're sitting there, like – it can be whatever, drinking beers, like, playing Madden, you know, throwing a football around, and they're talking completely normal. And then all of a sudden, they're – Girlfriend calls, their mom calls, or their grandma calls, and it's just like, oh, hey, how are you? And, you know, completely different demeanor. Yep. Yep, and then they get crushed when they hang up the phone. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Bro, what was that? Throughout them, you know, like, you're just getting whipped. But, you know, in a very lighthearted kind of rabbit holey sense, uh, I feel like it's, it's kind of a similar thing. And I, I've seen some things... I don't know if I if it was something that I actually read, surprise, surprise, or uh, something I picked up on like a podcast or something. But there's a some claim, I don't know if I can substantiate it with evidence, that's like <clears throat> almost every interaction that you have with a human being, you have slightly different characteristics of your voice um, and the way you speak for each person that you communicate with. <laughs> And that there's like little subtle mannerisms or subtle changes in intonation or word choice that you would have for each person that you created a relationship with, which I find very interesting. Then maybe there's a possibility that we kind of do this like adaptation, not necessarily being a chameleon, but we have kind of this natural adaptation just inherently. Yeah, I, I can see that, at least within social structures and social circles, I can see that. Um, I. I can definitely see the censorship of, I don't want to say censorship, but selection of language being different. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it was just, just at the table when we were at the diner, there are people that I will go into like a really deep conversation with. And there's, there's others where you do a a surface scratch type conversation with, Mm -hmm. and there's different ways to, to say those things and, I, yeah, I can see that before I dive super hard down into this rabbit hole and the, the whole podcast is over. <laughs> let's draw back. Let's, let's pull back for a second. Okay. <laughs> Mike, re-rail us. Where, where should we talk about? Okay. Mike, the gatekeeper. Well, we talk a little bit. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> well, we talk a little bit about athletic training and your motivations behind that. Um, and then if we're following this kind of timeline, you move to Penn State afterwards, right? Um, mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what kind of you know directed you in that direction and, and where you went from there? All right. So here's the sappy story. Uh, I looked at a bunch of other programs, but I only had Penn State in mind. And the reason that I had Penn State in mind is because back in the Great Depression, my grandfather had the opportunity to go there and play football. And his dad told him, living in central Pennsylvania coal mining towns, that he had to stay and help the family. No one until me had the opportunity to go to Penn State. So that's why I chose Penn State. Um, 
It's completely non-academic reason because the way their grad school at that time was structured was you had to do, you weren't part of main campus, but you worked on main campus and we had to drive to Harrisburg, which was like a, I can't even remember now, a two hour drive or something once every other week to take one class in Harrisburg because our graduate degree was actually out of Penn State Harrisburg. Uh, yeah, it, it was interesting. And the only thing they would offer us as grad assistants was uh, public health education, which is like a, a hospital administration education type degree. And they had a really good Kinesis program at the time that they wouldn't let us partake in. Mm-hmm. But, and then you can fold in the controversy that came up years later, and you can start to understand why certain portions of their athletic department were shut off to people. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I'm not going to go into that story. Yeah. yeah. But I, I do remember you telling me that there was, like, you could not get into the football building to get, like, tape and stuff. So you had to, like, meet people at, like, a loading dock to get equipment. Yeah. That was, that was always odd. Because um, yeah. I, especially the second year when we were with um, men's and women's soccer, if we all of our supplies were within the football building and you basically had to call ahead and they would bring it out to a loading dock and you would, you know, you would get it given to you by a staff member there. They kept that whole crew on a real skeleton crew. Um, it's completely changed now. It like if I could, if I could take what they have now and go back and do my GA, then uh, it'd be awesome. Cause a lot of their, Faculty, like the, the student faculty and stuff, their educational faculty is still there. And those people were amazing. Great friends. I got suckered into doing this horrible bone physiology, some 600-level course my last semester there <laughs> with a buddy of mine who was a doctoral, doctoral candidate, John Viro, and uh, got six months of just mind-crunching uh, – <laughs> content, but I I had a great time there. So I I don't want to, I don't want to hammer it too bad, but some of the stuff there was kind of weird just because of how the top down structure had been put together based off its history. Yeah. What was your, uh, what was your biggest takeaway from the 600 uh, level bone physiology course? Oh man. So The reason it was so hard is that the guy who normally taught it was on sabbatical. So they had a lady fill in who was just a clinical researcher. She'd never taught a course before. So the first month we went over how to breed mice to get the right characteristics of the mouse that you wanted to actually do the research on. Yeah. So (laughs) it, the biggest take the biggest takeaway that I got from that course is that load dictates bone growth, which was like something I already knew at the time. <laughs> is that is that Wolf's law? What's that? Is that Wolf's law or somebody's law? I think it's Wolf's law. Yeah, I think it's Wolf's law. Newton's fifth law of lifting or something. Fifth, fifth law of iron <laughs> game. So I'm just curious though. Other than the the load dictates like structure or whatever it is 
do you use any of your mouse breeding knowledge for any clinical stuff nowadays? No. <laughs> you don't have like you don't like if you can't just turn around and pick up like a big cage of like rats or something that you like breed for fun. Well, I have I have a a, a couple in my basement right now because I live in the country. But other than that, uh, I don't I don't really I don't really deal with mice too much. I, I'm more focused right now on the effects of an ex-wife on octopus. Ah. Yeah. It's a, it's a research study that needs to be done. I've seen some abstracts on it. but It's, uh, it's true. Yeah. Um, so you're saying that despite your almost monk-like beard, that you are not the modern-day Gregor Mendel? No. <laughs> <laughs> Jake's got the highbrow jokes. I like this. <laughs> um, I also have... <laughs> that, um, get a foam roller on that thing come on man uh, you know it's surprising I don't actually have a foam roller in my. look at all of its adhesions yeah <laughs> I mean it, it's stuck together right I mean how else do you think it's it's a yeast in reality it's actually because of its extensive nervous system well that and the multiply stitching that they the injure <laughs> put in this is that, a, is that a T.Y. or is that a, just a, a Um I would joke? assume that, that this is a Leviathan. <laughs> uh, is this why you told me that I would be a, a good meme lord? Yes. <laughs> you just made like eight. <laughs> I don't know. That's just how my brain is sometimes. Where do you I'm get like, your mason jars, by the way? It's built for a giant. That, Mike left this here. Oh. I, I live in Mike's old apartment. Mm-hmm. Oh, technically he still has the lease, but I sublet from Mike. Wow, in a different state. The relationship gets more complex. I like this. Yes, someone has once described my Mike as my hetero life mate. Mm. <laughs> That's the truth. We got a rad bromance going, for sure. This whole long distance thing is weird, though. Mm. Uh, yeah. Do a couple weekends together, man. Actually, uh, two weeks from now, I'm going down there. Yeah. That's awesome. So we'll, we'll take you to the unlimited $12 sushi train Ooh. in Durham. That's oh, yes. something that I – Mike, is there a gym down there that I can train at? I'm sure. There are many. Well, there's a few. There's a there's between a few and a many. Is that, I feel like that's a Spock quote. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Hold on, actually. Because where are you, Mike? So I'm in Durham. Uh, look at this. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Spider Strength. Spider Strength? Yeah, it's in uh, 804 Northwest Raleigh. Okay. okay. I'll contact them. Yep. Um, it's open 24 hours. That's where um, one of my athletes, Haley Bird, trains at on occasion. But they got all these, they got all the stuff, man. So, well, there you go. Do See? you are they friend? I mean, they are. They're arachnids, right? Are they? Would they take well to someone that's more versed towards like a cephalopod like <laughs> um, <laughs> persuasion? I'm sure. I'm sure they would. They all have eight legs, mm-hmm. so yeah, there it is. Toma- tomato, potato, same thing. Yeah, yeah. 
sure. <laughs> You're gonna get that in the comments. They're, they're not the same thing. A potato is a potato, and a tomato is a tomato. It's potato, <laughs> potato. You know, I really, I really look forward to those comments when we get them. Um, especially on like memes. I think someone put that like you do know that the rebels lost the this battle, right? On the the Star Wars meme that I made. And I was like, I, I put some like long-winded response about how, you know, much like this meme, science itself is like seemingly losing the war to our guruistic like mindset on rehab. But that in the end, Skynet will rule all and robots will enslave our populace, so it will eventually win. Oh, we're super close to Skynet anyway, so don't worry about that. Dude, I'm, if they take over, I'm screwed. I, they've already got me hardwired. Yeah. Yeah. Just immediately a death machine. Yeah, my, eye, like my eye will pop out and there will already be like some sort of like robotic like magnifying thing. Yep. Yeah. It'd be sweet. I think, so, I think Mike needs to get us back on track, too. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> let's let's uh, let's go back to one more uh, one more round of AT stuff, and then we'll move on. But um, Got it. are there any uh, like common myths or any kind of like uh, bad advice or things that you hear in the world of AT that you'd like to dispel or dispute? Hmm. Well, the one that I I don't like. And unfortunately, if you if you look around, it does actually happen pretty frequently. But we're not just there to tape angles ankles and get ice. Uh, we are our first responders to pretty critical injury. We're well well versed in concussion management and other injury management. And in my personal opinion, I don't think there's anybody out there that's as qualified to deal with the athletic population as an athletic trainer. Mm-hmm. With that said, (laughs) that also means that we have to hold our peers accountable and make sure that they don't just tape ankles, provide ice, and stretch people. Laser. Yeah. So we've got to be better, especially at the high school level where most people's introductory – introductory what am i jake what am i trying to say here uh experience with athletic trainers is is you you've got to you've got to be better so because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. i mean i've definitely seen that working with like some college kids where you know their their perception of athletic training is oh in high school all i did was get ice you guys actually do injury things mm-hmm or same thing with even with some uh, – when I was out in Pensacola, Mike, I don't know if you had a similar experience, but sometimes you'd get guys from like you know, like a D2 or a D3 school that would come in to train because they were uh, a draft prospect, and they have no concept of like what the scope of athletic training is. Mm-hmm. They're just like, can I just get some e-stim and this will go away? Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. dude, we have, the, we have the ability to work with you. We can – you know, collectively as an entire team here at Exos, we can like modify your training, you know, nutrition. We can help you with like sleep hygiene, all this stuff to make sure that you're performing at the top of you know, what you're capable of. And you literally just want to come over here and get Eastem. We don't even have an Eastem machine. Mm-hmm. Like it's upstairs in like a box underneath, you know, 50 other things because mm-hmm. we don't ever use it. Right. 
And I understand the limitations to some of it. Uh, I talked in the clinical athlete podcast that I was first on that a majority of the jobs held by athletic trainers are part-time positions or they're teaching and AT mm-hmm. positions. So your primary job is still a, a teacher. The ones that aren't teaching are typically contracted out from physical therapy clinics. And a lot of these large physical therapy clinics want that as a referral source. So your job is to identify and then refer mm-hmm. as opposed to identify, treat, and then refer post-ops, refer like difficult cases that require more time than you can probably fit in a high school, mm-hmm. you know, intelligent referral. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that creates a, a bit of a structural problem, especially when physical therapy is actively trying to keep athletic training at a lower level anyway. Mm-hmm. So, and I suggested a solution to that, but I don't know if it is the solution. I don't know what the solution is really. So, and what what is your solution to that, John? I think the NATA and the APTA should join forces and create a specialty tract within physical therapy school that is athletic training, as opposed to what we have now, for multiple reasons. But the biggest one being autonomy, because athletic trainers do not currently have autonomy, and I think they should. Uh, but with that would require a higher standard of education, which would be be solved by going through a PT track and having an AT specialty in physical therapy. So would that still be like the doctor level PT degree right now, but just with like a, a specialization in athletic training? Yes. Okay. Yes. Cause that's kind of, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but that's, I guess more or less what Mike and I did at Shenandoah because we mm-hmm. did a DPT and an MSAT at the same time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, I mean, I'm not against it, but that's also like we did that. So, mm-hmm. you know, but and I it, think, yeah. go ahead. It, it just, no, 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 Mike, it's, no, no, no. I was just like, I'm like cogitating and like wheels are turning, but I can't formulate a sentence right now, so please go. <laughs> it's really difficult if you look at the statistics of job retention in athletic trainees. Most of the time, after the age of 28, and I don't quote me on this because I read this a, a while ago, but it's something along the lines of like 40% of the workforce leaves the profession. Uh, and by the age of 35, that's even higher. The salaries aren't high enough. The hours are too long. And the value, not just the value as a, as a clinician, but the value that other members of the team portray to athletic trainers is sometimes one of those factors that makes it super, super difficult to stay within the field. Um, if we ramp up that value, especially building the foundation that the education structure, and we're not going to get into the education stuff, um, but for both PT and AT. But if you build that and you build the value into it, then hopefully you can graduate new grads that can start off at a higher pay scale that can have more reasonable hours and can dictate some of the things that they do uh, a little bit more effectively. Cause now I've kind of had a similar conversation with some other people in the past, but do you think this is something that they like, 
as a profession we have created because I feel like the mentality with a lot of AT like clinical internships, like if you look at, cause we talked about this a little bit. If you look at, if you want to be a pro um, athletic trainer, like with the, with the NFL, mm-hmm. you basically are looking at doing one to f- potentially three or four years of an internship where you're getting maybe $20,000 a year. If you're lucky working like no benefits working probably close to a hundred hours a week for most of the year. And sometimes even more like with travel and everything else during the season and people like, I mean, if you want to do it, that's what you have to do. And because that's what, that's the mentality and the hierarchical system almost that we've created as a profession. Do you think that bleeds into you know, we have decided because we love this stuff so much, we've decided to take pay cuts and and work longer hours and and that kind of thing. Or is there something else at play? I I think there's multiple factors to it, but that's definitely one of them. Um, it was kind of drilled into a lot of us in school that this is what it is. You need to pride pride yourself in how much, not just the high quality work you do, but how much work you do. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of perpetuates the entire system and, and bleeds into everything else. Uh, but the other, I mean, the other thing is because it's such a young profession comparatively, you know, I think physical therapy had what a 30 year start yeah. Head start 1920 something was polio, right? Yeah. For PT. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in the mid 1950s was athletic training and it still wasn't even called athletic training at that point. It was still just a, a fledgling uh, profession, chiropractic had a jump start on all of us. Um, but you have competing professionals as well, which makes the entire thing very difficult because now we can start talking about political regulation and lobbying and and you know infighting and and all that other fun stuff. The last thing I would probably say is for a lot of athletic training, especially the way that we look at treatment now, or at least our biases in this own little, our own little bubble, uh, it's very easy to bleed into strength staff. So you have another profession who's like, whoa, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> which that, that can be managed incredibly successfully, but a lot of the times you've got to put egos aside and that becomes very difficult because you know, we want to we want to modify training load, and we want to modify uh, particular type of uh, exercises for particular athletes, and you know sometimes that doesn't go over so well. So that's, there's a bunch of challenges, but we we definitely put ourselves in that position. We're partly responsible, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Yeah, it's a complex issue <laughs> to say it, the least. <laughs> especially especially I mean you think about some of those kids that are working part time. You know, in high school, making 10k a year off of it with no benefits, and their their real full time job is like bartending or waitressing. You know, I mean that, that is, that's that's like half of our friends from grad school right now. That's a hard life. Yeah, and that's why. Yeah, you can you can sense and you can feel some of the burnout. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know they went into this profession so they could pursue athletic training and do, you know, working on the sidelines, doing the emergency treatment and evaluation, the care. Um, but that's only, you know, a snippet of their day, whereas they have to do, you know, work at seven or eight in the morning all the way through school day and teach. And then they get to do the things that they want to do and went to school for. Yeah. That makes things really difficult. And it's not an easy program to get through. 
Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I, at least for Salisbury, we had practicals at the end of every year that I thought were harder than the NATA exam. Mm-hmm. Same. I mean, we, <laughs> our, our standard at our school was we everybody walked through the cert exam because you were scared to death of your practicals at the end of each year. <laughs> um, so it's not an easy degree to get. And when you come out and you've worked, yes, everybody had school, right, in college. Everybody went to class from 8 to noon or whatever you did. But I can tell you what my typical day looked like, and it was 6 a.m. you're in for treatments for probably two hours. You go to class, you go eat lunch, you go back to class, you go do pre-practice treatments, you go out to practice, and you sit in the rain and the cold and the wind because this is Maryland. It doesn't snow ever, which is just <laughs> full of sadness. <laughs> and then for a lot of us, you come back in, you do post-practice treatments, then you practice, right? Then you're practicing taping, practicing bracing, going through dermatomes and myotomes and all these things that we had to learn. And then for the other, an even smaller group of us, then we went and lifted. Mm-hmm. And you get home at nine o'clock, starving, go to sleep, wake up, do it again the next day. And I didn't get Saturday free because that's when all the games were. I mean, it's not the easiest degree to get and to come out and be like, we want you to work six hours a day at this school and we're going to pay you 10 grand and not give you any benefits. It's a hard pill to swallow. Hard to swallow pills. There's a meme for you right there, Jake. Hard to swallow pills. Yeah. You, I mean, you pretty much described my last semester of grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, be it, be in Ashburn at five forty-five in the morning. If I was coming from Winchester, I'd have to be up at three fifteen to leave by, I don't know, four o'clock in the morning. And then, all the pre-practice stuff finished by, by five or six at night, eat dinner, lift. And then that was when me and Mike started the podcast. Yeah. So I'd, sit, I'd hide in the doctor's office while the cleaning staff would go through the training room <laughs> vacuuming. And I'd put like a note on in the door that just said like, I'm doing homework and just like closed it. And we would podcast till like 11 o'clock at night and go home, get like three hours, three, four hours of sleep, do the same thing. Yeah. And that's not to, for anybody listening, it's not, it's not all doom and gloom. It's a incredibly rewarding profession. Mm -hmm. I have met lifelong friends and accomplished some of the coolest things. I've gotten to travel around the country. Um, It's afforded me multiple opportunities. And just the fact that I'm on this podcast right now is an example of that, but you're going to have to be creative probably more than you think you are. Um, but it can, it's, it's an absolute blast. So, and there's, it's, it's interesting too, in that like, you know, you get these periods where it's like super busy and then you have a lot of downtime depending Mm -hmm. on the day, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes the clinic's dead, no one's coming in depending on, you know, whether it's like a walkthrough or something like that. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity to like have fun in some unexpected ways. Um, I mean, we would make up like fake sports, like just ways to find like competitions around the training room, like who can bounce this tennis ball, like in the cubbies or, you know, who can get it to bounce across all the, the, the taping tables without hitting the ground. I mean, there's all sorts of like just stupid things you end up coming up with to like pass the time. But I mean, some of those memories of just like Mike, even hanging out in SU's like football training room mm-hmm. or like going to. Those horrible Sunday JV games. Oh, yes. <laughs> because for some reason, they had a JV football team. 
college? In D3 college. Uh, All right. (laughs) (laughs) And they played on Sundays. That's great. Um, Yeah. But, I mean, like, there's there's all sorts of, like, really cool opportunities and things that I, I definitely never thought I'd be able to do in my entire life and some dreams that were accomplished from just, you know, being able to be a part of this profession. Um, yep. And I think it sets you up. I mean, like you said earlier, John, like, I really don't think that there is anyone who is as qualified to work with athletes as someone who works with athletes all day long. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's one thing if, you know, you have some sort of background in athletics or lifting and you can provide some of that experience like in like a PT clinic or something like that. But until you can really truly understand like what is it that they're going through on a daily basis from like a psychological standpoint, like what are their coaches, you know, telling them, you know, what are they getting from the strength staff and seeing all these components that make up like what their life and experience is, I don't think you can fully understand um, or like really do them justice the way that you can in the athletic training profession. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And that's probably going to trigger some people, you know, it's, it triggers me just as much as when somebody yells trainer from halfway across the field. But, um, maybe we should change the name, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you know, it is what it is. It is. Yeah. I love, I love the, uh, the impact that you can have, um, and changing someone's life around. I mean, I mean, John, you had mentioned your experience with your athletic trainer in high school and how it kind of set you on this career path, you know, um, you know, every day I I got the privilege of of working at a high school, um, three times a week, I go out to the high school and I help out and, you know, just being able to interact with those athletes. And, you know, even if it's just one positive influence that can help change their trajectory or just knowing that we're there to kind of help and support them and and their endeavors and what they need to do, whether that be in their sporting event or if it's something that they're trying to work through a little bit within our scope, obviously. Um, You know, I just think that's such a rewarding part of the profession um, and something that is kind of unique to that in in a way. I mean, we get a huge amount of time to interact with those athletes. So... Well, and the other thing, and I'll say this, there's a hidden population. We talk a little bit about social media and all this stuff and the people that surround the person you're interacting with, but I'll apply that here to athletic training as well, especially at a high school level. You can make a super positive impact on the athlete in front of you, but you can also make an impact on their parents. Mm -hmm. And if you can get through to the child or to the the athlete that long-term physical activity is, is a gold standard when it comes to health, you can also make an impact on their parents if you're that positive an influence on the kids or that involved in the school. So you start talking about being able to change a community through your work with just an athletics program in a high school, and you can really start to see the impact you can make. But it has to be positive experiences. So I think kind of along that, you know, depending on the school that you're at, like, I know, Mike, we both were at Hanley here in Winchester. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you look at that, that is that is like Winchester City School. And you have an interesting mix of, like, really, really wealthy people and also people that are from a very much lower socioeconomic status. And so you have this mix of kids that, like, you know, can af- afford whatever they need. And you've got kids that this is literally, like, you're basically their PCP, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they don't have, they have, they just don't have access to like any form of other medical care. So like you have to be that person to them. 
And that puts a lot of weight onto the impact that you're making and the things that you do, especially with those kids. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, I know let's, let's segue into a little bit more here. I know, um, we're, we're nearing the end of our show, but, uh, there is a couple of things that I would like to, to kind of get, pick your brain about and talk a little bit more. Um, so John, you know, you're, you mentioned in your bio and, and from what we've heard so far, you know, you're involved with clinical athlete and, uh, this kind of clinical athlete powerlifting course. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got involved with clinical athlete and, and kind of what you're doing at this point in time? I'm a OG clinical athlete guy, man. Um, I remember the first email that got sent out through Juggernaut's email list and Quinn was expressing interest and I shot an email faster than I could type. Um, mainly because, I mean, I had been following Quinn since the dark side strength days with him and, and uh, oh man, now I'm going to blank on the name again. But when those guys were down in dark side strength basement doing 90, 90 hip lifts and, that sort of thing. But uh, that's when it started. And when he got that email, uh, the, the phone interview was immediate. We chatted it up. I got in the network and, and I've been challenged every day by people in that network uh, ever since. Jake being one of them. Mostly my funny bone with Jake, but... <laughs> Uh, it's been, it's been a huge growth opportunity for me, especially, uh, being an athletic trainer amongst the sharks of the PT world. Um, it's pushed me to stay more up to date. It's made me change some of my practices. Uh, it's opened me up as a critical thinker substantially, um, and made me much more cognizant of the things that I do on a regular basis, not just in clinic, but the decisions that I make, uh, with treatment. With that said, um, the powerlifting course got started literally cause I asked Quinn if he wanted to do one. Nice. <laughs> I've been following the CWC for a long time as weightlifting course. And it might've been like a year and a half or so ago. I was just like, Hey man, is anybody, has anybody expressed interest in, in doing a powerlifting course? Like we got some pretty strong guys in the network. We got some some guys that coach on the side in the network. Apparently, you know, there, nobody really had. So we just picked it up and ran with it. Um, I've been coaching now between weightlifting and, and powerlifting 10 years. And it's this project has probably made me look at myself more than than anything else too. So it's, it's been a great opportunity. Nice. That's cool. Now for those of the uh, individuals listening that aren't really super familiar with clinical athlete and, and kind of what you're offering, what, what is it? Clinical athlete is a first and foremost, it's a, it's a network of clinicians who work with athletes and are athletes ourselves typically. Um, so like Jake is part of the network. I'm part of the network. Uh, I'm a power lifter. Jake's a, Strong man competitor. <laughs> Strong is a it's a relative term. Mike's also on there too. Him yes, and I just Mike tend to be a little too. bit a little bit more lurky than um I don't I haven't other than the recent meme onslaught and lifting videos, um neither one of us is like super active right now on that platform. 
Yeah. The forum is pretty cool. We have uh, strength coaches, athletic. We have a bunch of professionals on there now at this point, a bunch of student uh, physical therapists. Uh, we've got a cool little journal club that Kevin McNamara started with a bunch of the students that uh, some of the clinicians jump on with them every now and then. Um, but the network itself is like-minded professionals uh, trying to continue to push the, the profession forward. The forum is really cool because that's where it all really kind of started for me is just the same thing you guys are talking about. It's just lurking, right? People are putting up article after article and discussing uh, research all day, pretty much back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, and it's been nice because it's a it's a nice little sounding board for people that can throw ideas out there and all kind of spitball it and see what comes out on the other end. Jake, don't die. Not this Sorry. way, Jake. Not this way. Not this Not way. like this. <laughs> Mike's too far away from you. <laughs> I just choked on my own spit. I'm reminding my my own mortality. <clears throat> I choose to do that sometimes just so that I don't lose sight of, of uh of what's important in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> oh. <clears throat> You okay, man? I'm I'm all good. I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna grab my special buddy over here and just snuggle, tug it out. (laughs) But I I would say, clinical athlete is a platform to help people become better professionals and lift them up. Uh, However, however they want to take advantage of that themselves. So nice. It's funny because you use the word lift. In that sense. Always. Yeah. Always. <laughs> it's like it's you have another option. <laughs> no. Um, Eve. <laughs> hoist. I like hoist. I like I like using hoisting rocks instead of like, you know, lifting stones. Because I feel like it like there's like some strongman purists that are just like <sighs> why would you say why would you call them rocks? <laughs> I mean a natural stone is a rock, is it not? I mean it's it's a large rock. It's a large rock. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's 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 nice though because clinical athlete for me was what really opened my eyes to there being other things in the world of rehab. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike, we've talked about this on the show quite a bit um, because Shenandoah has a really excellent like manual orthopedic course. Like we have fantastic clinicians that are very intelligent, but the bias within the program tends to be a little bit more heavy towards manual therapy. And I don't know that we get in the PT program as much exercise and therex stuff as we do in athletic training. And so going down to, to exos and then at the same time joining clinical athlete and watching uh, these like, internet curmudgeons like Derek Miles just beat people with the truth stick. Like, I mean, I remember, dude, my first post, I think the first time I ever interacted with you was, hey, man, I just picked up a, like, it's like, I think it was the pain pill. I was like, who knows, is anybody using uh, body tempering clinically? Because Donnie Thompson said this and blah, 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 and all the guys down at Excess were using it. And so I picked up a pain pill and we're using it for manual therapy and and like literally, like looking back on it, I could feel the just like 
like hatred and like disturbance in the force that like Derek and and uh, and Michael Ray probably had because they were just like, Ugh. um. Here's ten references as to why you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Because I think I think the whole discussion was that like Donnie likened it to like micro fractures with mm-hmm. like tie fighters or something. Yeah, and it, was, it was just looking back, it was a hugely pivotal yet also very much embarrassing um, introduction to the world of clinical athlete. But I think that's kind of how it goes. I mean, you get as a student the challenges to post something and to contribute something to the website um, or the, sorry the forum. Just to you know, pose a question or share a research article, or in my case, you know, expose everyone to your biases about uh, using um, giant metal foam rollers of death to fix all your fascial sling problems, and it's it's really humbling because right from the get go, you get you get involved with these like really intelligent people who have been reading research. I mean, like. What is, does Derek literally have, like, does he walk around with, like, a stack of articles? Because I swear, every, like, two hours, there's, like, another article posted on his, like, Insta story. Have you ever watched Criminal Minds? Yes. Hmm? I think he's a speed reader like Spencer. <laughs> he's like, just, like, evolved he, to another plane of existence. I he don't cons- He consumes stuff. And a lot of this is, is just how well-practiced he is in it. And, yeah. and Mike's the same way. Michael Ray's the same way. They're just so well versed in it that they can, they can go through an article, and what to us seems like light speed, um, but just because they consume it so well and they've they've done it so frequently, and it, that that sort of thing takes practice, and that's what I had to learn because that was massively intimidating to me when I first got on the forum, is it's like oh here's like six articles I got to read, like what am I gonna, it takes me two hours to read these things I don't understand. And oh wait, two more just got posted. Like, I don't know. and it challenged me to keep up. Just like we were talking about with uh, the strongest guy in the room, right? Yeah. And, and, and training environment, it's done the same thing for my career as a, a good training environment does for for people with in powerlifting or or any other strength sport. And that's that's what it's done for my brain. Because now I, I can go on and I can ask a question and get crushed and uh and not even not even get crushed. Just get feedback and find articles that I didn't know existed and have a perspective that I didn't really think of. Mm-hmm. I mean just on the podcast we've had people who I wouldn't say are conflicting one another, but have really well thought out and and research to back up processes that you're like, oh, so how we don't really know much. <laughs> <laughs> just embrace the uncertainty, guys. That's that's where I'm at at this point. Just embrace that you really don't know that much at all. I think the other thing with that is also not taking things personally, mm-hmm. because I think it's really really easy as a student on there to just be like feel overwhelmed and that this response, like this well thought out response with research links from somebody else is like a personal front on your character. Mm-hmm. And that is not at all what it is. It's literally just, Hey, this was your, you know, your question or the thing that you posed. Have you thought about this? Have you read these things? Because if you haven't, I would encourage you to read them, try to, <laughs> you know, advance your knowledge a little bit, ask some more questions based off this and then formulate a response 
to have a professional discussion back and forth. You know, and that's the beauty of it is because that's the goal is to have these spark these professional discussions where it's not just like, you know, post some inflammatory response on Facebook and then just like go after each other and insult everything about the person, their religion, sexuality, gender, and, you know, what color dress their mom wore up to church on Sunday. Um, I think when you can get past that and realize that it's not personal, it is something for you to put in and gain from. Um, what's the what's the Beatles quote? The 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 love you make is equal to the love you take, or something like that. Something. It's I'm something like Beatles that, but guy. it's more like research articles. So. Well, that so a lot of this, if people were to experience, I don't want to say the real science world because you know, but hard science, if re, actual researchers, if you publish a study, hordes of other scientists come out to say no. Um, and it, it's all within respect that you go to conferences of engineers, polymer engineers, and they're going to sit there and they're going to be like, you know what? I understand what you're saying, but this data, this data, this data, and this data within your whole thing were actually misrepresented. And like, that's their job. That's our job is to take some of those faulty biases or take some of those thought processes and logics and, refine them and help each other refine them. You can't take it personal because it shouldn't be something that makes up your identity. Mm. Right. But people that I'm a Graston guy or I use the FMS and that's my tool. It's like, eh, don't identify with it. Mm. Mm. Well, it's, it's ultimately how we can provide Better care, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, when you think about it, it's it's fits for the patient in front of you. Um, and so I agree with that wholeheartedly, you know, <coughs> regardless of what method that you're using. I mean, we want to use best practice, right? Um, and who was it, Josh Walters that we talked to? Um, Josh that was, is great, man. Oh, yeah, he's awesome. And he had a quote on one of our podcasts we were talking about, but he's he's not reading the research and all this stuff to be right, but he's doing it to be less wrong. And that may have been a quote from someone else that he had gotten from his mentors or so, but, um, but down the chain, but that really resonated, you know, it's like, we're just trying to find the way that we can provide the best care, uh, get our, you know, guys and gals back as you know, as soon as we can in the, in the best way that we can. Um, well, and I think that theme of just trying to be less wrong is, is, is really popular right now, or at least within our circles it is because that's what all of us are trying to do. Eventually, the theory that you have is going to be disproved. <laughs> so, I mean, you you can't we can't create dichotomies here and and act like we're right because we're more than likely not. <laughs> and I think this is another. Josh may have said this one when we were talking with him, but I'm pretty sure this came from Derek, um, and that was like be be always be confident, but never be certain. Mm. Yeah. You know, so just like learn yourself as much as you can have, it's okay to form opinions based on the stuff that you know, but be ready to question those, those biases and those opinions when new information is presented to you. And then just something that I think, uh, level up posted it with, uh, Mike Amato, um, you know, don't just like discount something because it doesn't go with what your current bias is, you know? I think Zach had like two research papers and he's like, oh, well, this one says that it's bad. So I'm going to look at the one that's good. 
And, you know, Mike's whole point was try to look at the total base of evidence, you know, read more stuff, expose yourself to more ideas along a certain theme and just try to look at what the big picture is telling you. Cause there's always going to be, you know, <clears throat> articles that say, you know, one thing versus the other. But if you look at their methodology and what they're contributing to the larger research base, it lets you ask more questions and kind of dive deeper into um, the bigger picture. And for people listening, that's not easy. It does, to start, is, that is not easy. It takes practice. It takes reps. It takes critical thinking. It takes bouncing it off other people. It takes time. You're, you're not just going to jump in and start consuming research at a high rate and understand most of it. You're going to have to do it a lot. So it's better to just pull the trigger and start doing it and then fail a lot along the way than it is to just kind of stick the blinders on and not ever try to learn more. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's where, that's where I am. I mean, I'm still very much a, a new grad person and I do not readily feel comfortable reading research. I do it as best as I can, but it doesn't mean, mean that it's easy. It's still mm-hmm. like RP 12 half the time. Cause there's like, I know I'm just like the meme that we posted a couple of days ago. I understand some of these things, but there's a lot of stuff that I don't understand. Um, and so, you know, you just do your best. Yeah, I don't think that, anyone's ever going to fault you for doing your best as long as key. you make a concerted effort. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then if somebody says, Hey, I know you're doing your best, but you didn't read that right. This is what it actually says. Don't take that personal. <laughs> Be like, okay, I can understand. Let me read that again and try Mm-hmm. But that, that I think is by far the hardest point. Um, at least it was for me initially. And I think for a lot of people, it's really hard because it's, you have so much stuff tied up in your education and what you valued as your education that when you see all these like other opinions or things that are done differently or question that make you question the things you learned through your first response is to just dig deeper and go, Nope, 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 Nope. This is what, I, this is what I know. And this is a hundred percent true. Um, and so it's hard, it's mm-hmm. hard to be vulnerable and to accept that <clears throat> you really don't know everything that you think, you know, and mm-hmm. the more that you practice, the more you realize, man, I really, I really don't know it, anything. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand a lot of the times too, that we're all, we're all on the same team. We do want people to get better. We all got in this profession for the same or similar reasons. We want to help people. So that person that's calling you out wants the best for your patients. They're not trying to attack you. They want you to be a better clinician. And that's, that's been a big lesson learned through getting older and being part of clinical athlete and other networks like that. (laughs) Definitely. We'll be sure to uh, put some links down in the uh, show notes for anybody that's interested in uh, putting an application in. <laughs> yeah. And, hey, look, th- there's other outlets out there, too. Um, the the mentor-mentee thing that, that Zach and, and Steph have with Level Up, I've heard great things about. I mean, if you're a new grad or you're a student or something, I mean, from from the feedback that I – Whoa. There it is. Got the shirt. Um I've heard that, that the mentors are learning just as much as the mentees in that program. So there's a lot out there. Uh, obviously, I'm going to push clinical athlete because of what it's meant to me. But there's a a groundswell of, of 
positivity coming, and that's two places it's really coming from. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Well, John, we're uh, we're nearing the end of our show here, and there's uh, there's always one question that we always ask all of our guests on the show here. So. Uh, Yep, here we go. Uh, we here at the Movement Docs, we believe in always moving forward in all that you do. So based on all of your previous experience and knowledge and life and love and the pursuit of happiness, what is one piece of advice that you'd give to anyone listening to this show to help them be the best versions of themselves? Be patient. Um, nothing comes right now. Whether Whatever goal it is that you're pursuing, to be smarter, to be stronger, to be a better person, it takes reps. Uh, and, and my experience in the gym has taught me that more than anything else. And that's why I'm a powerlifting coach and my biases lean heavy towards that realm. Everything takes reps and it takes time to accumulate those things to make real change. So be patient. I love that. <laughs> there it is. That's fantastic. So, John, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on our show today. If anyone <laughs> listening to this show wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, Instagram at Rebuild Stronger Online is probably the easiest. Um, you can hit me up on Facebook. That's fine. I'm, I'm on there as well on Messenger. Uh, those are the two platforms that I use the most. I don't tweet or snapchat or anything like that i try to keep it simple so those are the two that are the easiest um if you want a more direct line then you can hit me at john at clinicalathlete.com perfect and we'll make sure that we put those in the show notes for anybody looking forward to getting in contact with you uh yeah so thanks again for tuning in this week where we spoke with john flag if you have any questions comments concerns or have a topic that you'd like us to discuss shoot us an email at tmdmovementdocs at gmail.com Thanks, and we'll see you next week. John, you want to hear what my new uh, Instagram name is going to be for my personal? Please. Here's what I come up with. Not a real Dr. Deadlift. <laughs> <laughs> Your arms are like half his length, man. <laughs> You'd be half Dr. Deadlift. <laughs> I mean, it's if we get into girth proportions... I mean, this is, I wear a 2X knee sleeve for my arms. I was supposed to so, say, I think, I think Caller's belt could go around your leg. Yes, probably. Yeah. One yeah. day, one day, 